been working our way through the book of First Peter. For some of you, you'll be relieved to know that today is the last sermon out of the book of First Peter. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully, it has been a good journey. We'll move on to some new things through the fall. Hopefully, uh, starting after the new year, we will do a series through the Psalms, uh, but we will press on. <clears throat> As we uh, come this morning, Peter has been writing to, uh, I think, a very relevant letter to uh, his suffering church in his time. Uh, Peter writes to the church as they engage in uh, an intensifying situation of persecution, of suffering of various kinds. And so he writes to the church to encourage them and to instruct them how it is that we are to live as a people who uh, are living in a world that is hostile to Christ and to his gospel and to his kingdom. And so as we come here to the end of the letter, Peter is, is uh, giving some final instructions and I think that they, uh, anytime somebody is wrapping something up and giving you their, their last words, that they are important. And he does touch on some significant things as you uh, run through here. You'll see that there's an outline in the back of your bulletin. And you think he's going to speak to us of peace and watchfulness and faith and spiritual warfare and hope and worship. Each one of these could be a sermon by itself. I'm not going to do that, uh, at least not this morning. And, uh, but also, there, there, each one of these may speak to you in terms of where you are as you struggle to follow Christ and to be faithful in a world that is hostile to your faith and what it looks like uh, to, to walk with Christ in these conditions. And so, hopefully, one of those will speak into your life or all of them. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 15. Hear then the word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all of your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. It is by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, that I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered as your people this morning because we want to pour out our hearts in worship because we love you, we want to know you and walk with you, serve you all of our days. Father, we would also hear your voice. We long for you to speak into our lives. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word in such a way that we would not just gather some more information this morning, but we would experience transformation by the power of your word and spirit, as you come near to press forward your good work in us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we suffer, <clears throat> we are tempted. It is a time of temptation. If you don't know that, your eyes need to be wide open. Suffering is a time of temptation. It's a time of temptation for a lot of different kinds of things. It makes us vulnerable. And one of the ways that it makes us vulnerable is one of the things that we can do is we can begin to wonder if God is really in control. Because why would things be like this? Why would things break apart like this? Why would things not go my way like this? Why is it hurt like it does? Why? Why? And we start to wonder, is God in control? Does He really care about me? Seems like He doesn't really understand all that I'm going through or things would be different. And people who are in pain often can't think clearly. It's one of those things that you do see and you may see it in yourself, that when you are in pain, you, you can think some crazy thoughts. You can do some crazy things because pain does funny things to us. The fog can settle in and cloud our vision. And as Peter comes to the conclusion of his letter to these churches in Asia Minor, remember it's a whole group of churches in, uh, in this whole area that's now Turkey and Asia Minor. And as he's been writing to them, as they've been in, 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 in experiencing this increasing persecution and suffering and going through some things, he wants to speak clearly into their pain. He wants them to understand and address their doubts and address their fears and assure them that God does care for you. He does care for you. He loves you. He holds you in his hands. You don't have to carry these burdens alone. You don't have to suffer in silence and in the dark by yourself. The mighty hand of God is for us and not against us. The mighty hand of God is for us to uphold us and to strengthen us and to provide for us and to protect us and to encourage us and to comfort us. But in our pain and in our pride, we are tempted to resist God's grace, sometimes even when we're in pain and we need it the most. We are in our pride and in our pain resistant to it. Which is why Peter first calls us to humility. As I was reading this and studying and trying to understand Peter's flow here, and I do believe that he is a, a logical person writing things that, that are meant to be understood and pulled together. And he says, as we looked at last time, verses 5 and 6, and we talked about humility. And I was trying to figure out how verse 6 relates to verse 7, how this humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, relates to casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. And I believe that the answer lies in, the, in this, this simple fact. That verse 7 is not a new sentence. And you'll see there should be a comma, a little c. You know, humble yourselves under his mighty hand so that he will exalt you. Casting all of your cares on him. Humble yourselves. Casting all of your care on him. And I believe that what Peter is saying quite clearly in this subordinate dependent clause about casting our care is that humbling ourselves is one of the ways, the significant ways that we come under his hand and then casting our anxieties on him is one of the significant ways that we humble ourselves. And a lot of us are tempted simply to 
to resist his grace and to press on and to power on. In the significant way, God says, when we cast all our anxiety on him, we trust him. When we cast all our anxiety on him, we don't trust in ourselves. We forsake our own self-reliance. We forsake our own self-ability to do things and to, to stand. When we, in, in order to cast our anxieties on him, we have to humble ourselves. And trust in his sovereignty and trust in his grace and believe that he cares for us and believe that he hears our prayers and believes that he will relieve us of these burdens. We're tempted to try to power on. We're tempted to power on without prayer. We're tempted to power on without real careful thoughtfulness about our dependence upon God and the fact that apart from him we can do nothing. And it takes you humility to say, I can't do it. The world would mock us and say, it's a crutch. It would say that it's, you know, that, that we're, it's, it's for the weak. It's a crutch for the weak. But the scripture says it is simply accurate self-awareness. It just says it is a clear view and picture of reality. God is God and you are not. And that we cannot and we should not bear these things alone. To consciously humble ourselves under his power. To consciously humble ourselves under his glory. To consciously humble ourselves under the knowledge that he is God and that he reigns. To consciously humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Is the first step to being free to cast all our anxieties on him. And to find freedom from the burden of those things that would crush us. Because we are not meant to bear them alone. Humility puts its trust wholly in God. It forsakes self-trust. It acknowledges our need. It acknowledges that God is sovereign. Jesus in Luke 12, it's there in your bulletin. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. In another place where he says this, it says that not one of them falls to the ground apart from his will. If not one of these sparrows, he says, is forgotten before God, he says, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And this isn't just trivia with God. right? When it says the hairs on your head are numbered, it says he knows you. He's, he's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. right? If he knows not one sparrow is forgotten, and that's like the lowest, they're bought and sold, two for a penny. He says, how much more valuable are you? Right? If the hairs on your head are numbered, if God has that level of knowledge and interest in knowing you, and you just argue from the lesser into the greater, does he not know your circumstances? Does he not know your needs? And so what is Jesus' conclusion? Fear not. Cast all your anxieties on him. Because you are of more value than many sparrows. Because God cares for you. That's what he is saying. God is sovereign. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, apart from his sovereign knowledge and care. And if not one sparrow is forgotten, do you think that he has forgotten you? Let me just ask you if you have children. Have you ever forgotten that you have children? Have you ever forgotten that what they need from you? Do, you? do you not know that they need to eat today? Do you, not, do you not know that they need your attention and your love, that they need clothes, that they need to be prepared? Do you not know what they're, in fact, you know what they need before they do. 
And there's at one point where Jesus says that your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Because he's your father. And he does care for you. And so we have to humble ourselves to believe and to accept and to trust that this is true. That God does not forget me. That God does know my needs. That the almighty God, under whose mighty hand we find ourselves brought low, that that mighty hand is for us and not against us. That is a mighty hand of power to uphold us and to strengthen us and to provide for us and to care for us. And we can cast our anxieties on him because his hand is mighty. And we abide underneath it, under his grace, under his mercy. And because it is true that he cares for you, you can unload. (laughs) Unload burdens and anxieties and fears onto the almighty one. Those things that you're concerned about that you have no control over. And that's the truth, isn't it? We think we're in way more control than we think we are. And so we worry and we fret and we... I'm not in control anyway. You're not in control. The almighty hand is for you. Let him carry the burden. The truth will set you free from all those things that keep you up at night. From all those things that are... Wearing at your soul that you can't control. The Almighty cares for you. You are under His mighty hand. Roll your worries into His. Romans 8, 28, say there in your bulletin, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things are working together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. It's almost so familiar and so trite that we forget. To let that truth reign in our souls. Where God says, I am working all things together for your good. I am in control of all of those circumstances that you're not and you're so worried about. And I'm working them together for the good. It's sometimes hard to see. It doesn't always feel that way. But it is always true. Later on in Romans 8, right after he says that, he says, He who did not spare his own son for you, Purchase your soul from death, the cost of his own blood, and an eternity in hell to pay the price for you. He who did not spare his own son for you, will he not with him give us all things? Now he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he's given, you his, if he's given his own son to purchase your soul so that he could make you his child and adopt you into his family, will he not now, if he's given the greatest thing that he could possibly give, not care about our lesser needs? Do you believe that the mighty hand of God is for you? That the one who did not spare his own son is not sparing now. But his love is perfect. It takes the grace of humility to abandon ourselves and our anxieties because we have to abandon not just our anxieties, casting our anxieties on him, Our anxieties are so much a part of us. Really what it calls us to do is to abandon ourselves to God, to his sovereignty, to his will, to his ways. Do what you will, oh Lord, I trust you. I'm not in control, I see that. These things that are happening, you are in control. I trust that. And so there is a, it really is an abandoning ourselves to to God, which is a scary thing. And so in our pride, we resist. We fret and we hold on to it. 
Let us yield to his care and give ourselves up. His care for his people, and I believe that this is the underlying, well, the tenor of all of Scripture from the beginning to the end about God and his love for his people, his steadfast love for his people, his care for his people. It is, the, it is the underlying foundation of the rest of what Peter wants to say in this text. The rest of what he goes on as he closes with, his closing thought, oh church, as you suffer, oh church, as you are maybe confused by your circumstances, oh church, as you wonder why this hostile world sometimes has the upper hand on us and it, and it feels the way that it does. He says the first thing you need to understand is you need to humble yourselves under who God is as God and you're not and cast all your fears on him. And then he goes in to say, and, and as we're doing this then, the foundation goes on in verse 8 to say, Be sober-minded and be watchful, because your adversary, who is the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So be sober-minded and be watchful. As a people under his mighty hand, safe in your Father's care, be sober-minded and watchful. Now, Sober-minded should be familiar to you by now because as we've preached our way through 1 Peter, this is the third time in a short letter to one you know, reading he says to be sober-minded. So whenever somebody repeats something over and over again, it usually is so that it will sink in, right? We learn by repetition. And so this is the third time he's told us be sober-minded. Chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7, and here chapter 5, verse 8. And we've said that sober-minded is, is both literal and figurative. I think here it's more figurative. It can be literal in the sense of do not be drunk, be sober. And I think that's true because that's when we're clear-minded, which is why it's used as a metaphor for being clear-minded, being alert, being awake. Be sober-minded, clear-minded, awake, alert. Why? Because you have an enemy. And he's clear-minded and he's on the hunt. And so we need to be, he says, clear-minded. And then he adds, not just to that, he adds, and watchful, right? Be sober-minded and watchful. Let me ask you, when in Peter's experience was he told to be watchful? So I think some of these things, his closing remarks to the church, are things he's learned in the fire himself. Right? This comes from the deep experience of a man of God who has suffered and failed and walked with his Savior and he, as, he, as he closes, he gives his parting wisdom to the church. right? Because he's probably remembering, if you haven't made the connection, to that long night of temptation in the garden with Jesus. And it was a night of temptation because it was a night of suffering. And as he faced the cross and he wrestled with it and said, Father, if there's any way to go a different way, let's do that. If, it, if this cup can pass, let it pass. And Jesus goes, as he enters into his suffering and Make no mistake, it started before then, but definitely started in the garden where he sweat blood and began in his suffering, in his temptation that he calls Peter and the apostles, a couple of the other guys, to come basically for a prayer meeting, pray with me. This is hard for me. And Peter fails miserably. Right? He falls asleep. He's asleep at the wheel. He was called to watch and pray with Jesus through the night of suffering and temptation, and he fell asleep. And then Jesus, in a gentle rebuke, a rebuke nonetheless, could you not watch with me, pray with me one hour? 
This is the exact point of Peter's failure. And as he closes off with the church, he says, my friends, don't fall asleep at the wheel. You're at the wheel right now. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Be sober-minded and watchful, prayerful, dependent. Peter, from the depth of his own failure, remembering his own rebuke, could you not watch and pray with me? Tells the church, watch and pray with me. Wakefulness, watchfulness, so that we will not fall into temptation. Why? Because the enemy is snapping at your heels, right? And that's where he goes from here. That's a picture of a dog, but he goes to lion, right? Your enemy's snapping at your heels. The reason you need to be alert and watchful and prayerful is because you have an, el- an enemy, an enemy who is vigilant to destroy you, and destroy our church, and destroy churches in general. We have an adversary, verse 8, as he goes on, an adversary that prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Hunting you down. Let me ask you this. Do you believe what he is saying? Because if you believe what he is saying, if you left here and you had heard, you had heard on the news that the zoo had a catastrophe, all the gates failed, the animals are loose, there are some lions roaming Hickson. It happens. And they're roaming Hickson, they might be in the area, and you're going from here to your car. Aren't you, are you not going to be a little watchful? Are you not, not going to be a little bit concerned, alert, and awake? There is an enemy hunting you down. And if we do not pay attention, if we are not sober and watchful, he will outwit you. And this is the thing we have to understand in terms of the way the devil works, right? He will outwit you. It's there in your bulletin under the third point. Yes, we're already there, third point. 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says this. Peter, Paul is speaking about forgiveness, and then as he speaks about why we should be forgiving, he says, so that you will not be outwitted by Satan. Because that's one of the the big dangers that you and I abide under every day is that we would be outwitted by Satan, by the enemy. For we are not ignorant of his designs and his schemes. And that's why we should be forgiving. Because it's God-like. And to not forgive is more Satan-like. Right? And you see how that is. And so as he's talking about forgiveness, and he calls in, he says, to not be forgiving is to be outwitted by the devil. Right? It's 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 to go down the wrong road, to listen to the wrong voice, to imitate the wrong example. The chief strategy of the enemy is to lie and to deceive. I don't have time this morning to do a full-blown spiritual warfare thing on the way the devil works and how we engage in spiritual warfare, but I do know this much. He is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. It is the chief way, the chief way that he pulls I've never seen a man or a woman Literally devoured by Satan. I know that's a threat in the passage, but what does it look like then? Because as the scripture then unpacks, what does it look like to come under his power, be devoured, is to be deceived, to believe his lies, and to live as if they were true. And so he, the way that the devil causes us to serve his purposes 
is by feeding you a lie, getting you to believe it, and to begin to act on it. Right? And then we, who, then we serve him instead of God. And this is the way the enemy works as much. I see it every day in the church. Where we forget the truth of what the scripture says about forgiveness and mercy and love and our mouths and our tongues and our relationships and, and about what it looks like to follow him and to honor him and to live lives that are honoring to him and the way that we relate and the way that we minister and do and all the things we do. And so often when we are encountering problems, when we encounter problems, nine out of ten is because somewhere along the line we're believing a lie and then the way that we are living with each other and engaging in each other is out of the lie and not out of the truth of the scripture. We have not humbled ourselves under his mighty hand to do what the scripture says. And we are doing, as we'll see what, what, what is on our hearts. See, look at Matthew 16, 13. It's there in your bulletin. Jesus says, 16, 23. Jesus says this. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember this? Who, do the, who does everybody say? Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, and so Peter has this great confession. He says, you know, the... the you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but, but God himself, the Father, has revealed this to you. So this confession of Christ. And then the next thing, J- Jesus says, well, now, okay, now we got that straight. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and it's going to go very badly. And Peter says, no, <laughs> no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now go with me here. Peter is not Satan. Peter is not even possessed by Satan. Peter is deceived. Peter thinks it is better. And he's not even being evil. And this is the thing you need to understand. To come underneath the, the, the influence of the devil and to serve his purposes. You do not have to have evil in your heart. You only have to be setting your minds on the things of man. Right? Peter did not have evil in his heart when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem <laughs> to be crucified. And Peter said, no. He didn't have evil intent. He loves Jesus, and he doesn't want him to suffer. He doesn't want to lose him. He's just speaking his heart. And Peter says, you are thinking the things of man. And the things of man, sometimes it seemed good to you, are contrary to the will and the heart and the mind and the plan and the purposes of God. And we go astray. We become like Peter where Jesus would actually say, get behind me, Satan. Not when we become evil, you know, masterminds out there, but simply when as followers of Jesus like Peter, making the right confession like Peter, have in mind the things of man. We do this every day in the church. We are concerned about many things, my friends. About this many of them are the things of God. And I would say we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And what happens is we end up going the wrong direction when we set our minds. Peter has got his mind on the wrong things. We don't need to have evil in our hearts, just the things of man. And to lose sight of God's priorities for his church and his people. See, Galatians 5.15 is here in your bulletin. It says this, Peter writing to the church, and he says, Church, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you may be consumed. Wait a minute, I thought Satan devoured Christians. Here he says, you know, look out, you're going to devour each other. Why? Because we become, in, and this is hard to hear as believers, I would say, we become the tools of Satan. 
because we accomplish his purposes. How does, how does he devour? When it says, look out, he's looking for someone to devour. How does he devour? What does it look like when he devours? When you devour you. When you devour you. When we bite and devour each other, Satan is having his way. That's how he gets it done. He feeds you a lie where you become whatever, embittered or, you know, full of our own whatever, and, and then we go after each other. Watch out that we may be consumed by one another and serve not the purposes of God, but our enemy would love to see it. He does it in marriages. Right? How does he devour us? We're concerned about the wrong things. Ephesians 4 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. You see, letting the sun go down on your anger, staying angry is an opportunity for the devil. The NIV says you give the devil a foothold. Right? But you could put other things in there. See, we see, you know, this anger, bitterness, jealousy, selfishness, self-righteousness, you know, all of that you put in there, these things, and when those things, you let the sun go down on it and it, be, and it starts to take up residence, the devil has a foothold because those are not the things of God, right? Those are the things of man. Those are the things that are at odds. Peter says resist him. Don't hold on to your discontent and your anger and your bitterness and your arguing and your complaining because when you do, whether it's at home, in your marriage, whether it's in your church, I can tell you this, you serve not the purposes of God. But the enemy has found a new avenue to accomplish his purposes. Resist him, and as he says, the answer to all of this, verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing certain things that the church around the world is suffering. Don't let them tempt you in regards to your suffering and your doubts and those kind of things. But we resist him by being firm in the faith. We know the scripture. We know what God says. We know the right way to treat people. We know the dangers of of letting lust or anger or pride or all those things lodge in our hearts. And we become tools not of the kingdom or not of the right kingdom. Firm in the faith, living out the character of Christ, living out the teaching of Scripture, living lives that are pleasing to Him, casting our anxieties on Him so that we don't live out of fear and we don't live out of anger and we don't live out of jealousy and those things, but casting all that stuff so that we are free to love one another, sober and alert to the state of our hearts, knowing that the enemy wreaks havoc and he plays mischief in my soul if I'm not paying attention. And the way I treat other people, and the way I behave in the church. You know, when churches disintegrate, I mean, it's kind of like the Roman Empire. It's usually not because of the attacks outside. The church is under attack, make no mistake. But usually when a church splits, falls, breaks, and is destroyed, you know that 90% of the time it's from inside. Isn't it true? Just think. Usually when we're persecuted from the outside, the church gets stronger. Where do we fail and break? We bite and devour one another. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Not because he's going to physically take hold of you, but he might insinuate his lies into your thinking. And you might now have in mind not the things of God, but the things of man.
Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Understand the enemy prowls around and he's looking to devour not just you but whole churches. And if he can get you to play a part in sowing disconsent and dissension and discord, he would love it. So stand firm, verse 9 and 10. Stand firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. But after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself restore and confirm, strengthen and establish you. Stand firm knowing that the same suffering that we experience, and some of us are concerned because we're, we're losing rights and we're losing ground in the culture war. You know, we're losing ground in various places and And so we're putting our hope in various places to deliver us from these things. And I would tell you this, if your hope's anywhere but in God, we're we're misplacing our trust. What he says is that our suffering is not surprising, it is not unique. Even in his day, even as he's writing to the church in this one area, he says to them, do you not know that your brothers throughout the cosmos suffer similarly? And so what we have seen is from the time of Jesus you now, not just from the time of Jesus, actually when Jesus is talking to the apostles and the disciples and he says to them, blessed are you when you are persecuted and when people speak all kinds of evil against you because of me, because this is how they persecuted the prophets before you. And so Jesus points backward and says, anybody who's been faithful, Paul says at one point, anyone who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's how they persecuted the prophets. That's how they persecuted and executed Jesus. That's how they persecuted the first disciples in these first churches. But it's also the church, as he says here, the word is cosmos, the brotherhood throughout the whole cosmos. It's, it's part and parcel. It comes with the territory. I was asking Greg this morning if he got enough sleep, and he's like, yeah, not really. You just had a baby. They just had a baby. Did you get, did you get enough sleep? No, not really. Well, I, my, my response was, well, buddy, it comes with the territory. Right? I mean, that's a newborn at home. And then Peter is saying, my friends, it comes with the territory. You're going to follow Jesus in this world? He says, but this is not the end of the story. Suffering is for, he says, a short time. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who still reigns, whose hand is still mighty, under whose mighty hand you still exist, This one who has called you, he says, to an eternal glory in Christ. He says, this is not the end of the story. We will suffer for a short time, a little while. It reminds me of Paul. It's there in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians 4. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The God of all grace has called you beyond this. He says, you will suffer for a time, but this is not the end of the story. It is really hard for us. Because life, at least when you're young, seems long. The older we get, some of you know what I'm saying, how quick it seems to go and how short that it really seems to be. And the, the end is closer than the beginning was. And, and you start thinking, eternity, this life is, it is a little while. He says your life is like a vapor waiting to pass. In a little while, he will restore, strengthen comfort, establish you. Now, for some of us, that will happen in this life. You will endure some suffering at work, and, and this too shall pass. There'll be a time when it could. 
Some of us, that will happen in this life. You'll suffer for a while, and then, but you'll get on the other side of the treatment. But for some of us, it will not be in this life. He will restore and strengthen and comfort and establish all of us on the other side of Jordan's stormy banks, right? Where we, we, we long for that day when all things will be made right and good and true. But in the meantime, for a little while, he says, we suffer these trials. And then we'll close on a note of worship. And as he says all these things of humbling ourselves under his hand, casting our cares, being sober, being watchful, the devil is prowling. He's looking to devour and to destroy, resist him, stand strong in your faith. The church around the cosmos is suffering with you. And then he steps back, at least to him, be dominion forever and ever. God's dominion is forever. It is eternal. God is sovereign. See, the devil may prowl. God's people may suffer. But God is still in control. His dominion is the dominion. And his day is fast approaching. Jesus, it's still true in verse Chapter 3, verse 22, if you just look back, and this is still the context of all that he is saying. He's talking about Jesus who has gone into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers, all having been subjected to him. He says, as you, as we close out, you should have this picture in mind of Jesus reigning and everything underneath his feet like his footstool. It's a picture of our mind of the world. Jesus reigns above the circle of the earth. God's dominion is an eternal dominion. Blessed and praise be to the God who reigns. Whatever your circumstances, whatever you suffer, his dominion is an eternal dominion. He has called you to an eternal glory in Christ. God fulfills what he promises. That day is coming. It may be later than sooner. It may not come in this life. It will come in the next. But as we walk with him, it's under his mighty hand of care. And he does care about you. And he never leaves you and he never forsakes you. And he still reigns. He's over me for my good. We're moving toward this glory. So cast your anxiety on him. Do not fear your adversary. Stand firm in your faith. Find hope in your suffering. Stand certain of your destiny. And worship the God who reigns. As Peter says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace is your birthright under the mighty hand of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have sat this morning at your feet. This is your word. It is living, it is true, it is powerful and able to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Father, here, like a mirror, let us see ourselves, where we are afraid, where we are full of anxiety, where we're believing the enemy's lies, where we think that we're alone, where we think that you don't see us, where our faith is weak. Come near this morning, Father, and lift our eyes that we might see Jesus seated at your right hand with all power, authority, and dominion under him, that your dominion is forever and our calling is to an eternal glory. Oh, will you capture our hearts and our imaginations and teach us to be sober and watchful as we live before you and for you and to you until that day.